Hey, good morning, y'all. Good to see you. Good to see you. Good to see you online. I can't see you, but good to see you anyway. Uh, if you are joining us on Facebook or Vimeo this morning and you're having any troubles with the stream, I do want to let you know that you can, of course, just click over to our website. We are streaming the services uh, on our website, and if you're there, there's a, a link right there. You can take a look at the bulletin at the same time, and um, uh, there's even a chat feature if you sign in uh, that allows you to interact with others. Those of you who are strong extroverts in a strongly introverted time, it allows you to at least have some uh, contact with others over the course of the sermon. Um, Y'all, happy 10-year uh, happy anniversary. Today is uh, our anniversary birthday. I saw a new word this week, plantiversary. That's a nice one. Um, it was 10 years ago on this Sunday that Trailhead uh, had its first Sunday morning. Um, that, was a, uh, that was a good morning. That was a good morning. It's amazing what God has done over the last decade, and it is absolutely worth celebrating. Um, now, this isn't how I expected to celebrate it, right? When I, when I created my list of, of all of the things that I expected to be a challenge in our 10th year, all of our opportunities, all of our challenges, uh, you know, there's one thing that didn't make my list, and, and, and that was a global pandemic. Um, that just wasn't on my radar of possible challenges. Um, so instead of having Trailhead United and, uh, you know, a big 10-year celebration, 10 years kind of a big thing, I've, I've kind of dreamed of, of this celebration um, for years. Uh, it's, it's a significant milestone in the life of, of a church, of a congregation, of a community. Uh, and instead of all of us being able to gather together uh, for celebration and, and gratitude, we continue fighting to have shared experiences without shared spaces. And, uh, and so we gather this morning in a socially distant and responsible way uh, so that we might love one another and protect one another. It's the way we got to do it for now. Uh, it is not fun. It is not the way any of us would choose to do it, but it is the way we need to do it in order to protect our neighbors and especially those who are uh, most vulnerable among us. Um, you know what else wasn't on my list for our 10-year celebration? Uh, an attempted coup uh, with a guy out front wearing a Viking helmet and a, and a Chewbacca bikini. Um, that was not on my list of expected 10-year things. Um, the events of this week, holy cow, y'all. Um, what made this week, I think, so disorienting was the strange juxtaposition of the silly and the deadly, uh, of, of scenes that were like, we can't, this can't be serious, and other scenes where it's like, this is in fact actually deadly serious. Um, when you looked at the images, when you watched the crowd, when you watched the events of Wednesday unfold, um, it honestly looked like many of them were preparing, preparing for a a middle-aged booze cruise, uh, not, a, uh, not a, a, an attempted coup. And, uh, and yet, um, this, uh, this crowd became a mob. And they broke into our nation's capital. Uh, they forced the highest elected officials into secure bunkers. Uh, they vandalized national property and what we would call national sacred spaces. Um, they uh, perpetrated violence. One officer lost his life. Over 50 more were injured. African-American officers are now talking about the verbal abuse the racist abuse that they suffered. Of course, there's some video evidence that had already surfaced and highlighted that. Man, what a week, right? And the president, he, he wasn't at his most presidential this week, we'll just say that. Um, and the most disturbing part of all of this, to me, was the strange and unholy mixture of Christian symbolism mixed with clear messages of fear and hatred and violence. In the middle of all that, I had to write a sermon. <laughs> that was my week. Um, and as I came to the sermon, I'm just kind of putting this out there, just let you know what it was like, right? Do I, do I come this morning and be a cheerleader, uh, which is what I want to do, honestly? Um, 
put on my cheerleader outfit and just celebrate the, God that, the good that God has done over the last 10 years in Trailhead Church, this incredible community, the good, the life change, the blessing that has been poured out? Should I put on my pastoral outfit and, and, and show up to comfort the fearful and the sorrowful? Should I put on my prophetic outfit and confront the prideful and those who feel justified in their violent hearts? So yeah, um, I'm going to try to do all three. That's, that's what I'm going to do this morning. Um, first of all, 10 years. It is worth pausing and celebrating. Uh, as I have thought about the last decade, as I have thought about everything that God has done over the 10 years of, of Trailhead Church, um, I got to say, it's, it's, been, it's been a kick, right? Um, it's been fun watching some of y'all grow up. Uh, I've, I've seen a lot of life change over the last 10 years, right? I've seen many of you go from college students to, to courting and dating, and, and I've had the great privilege of, of marrying many of you, right? Uh, countless weddings over the last 10 years. Um, I have walked through the joy of marriages with many of you, and I have sadly walked through uh, the pain of failed marriages with some of you. I've celebrated the birth of kids with many of you. I have mourned and cried at the suffering of infertility with some of you. I've helped some of you bury your children. I've seen some of you come to faith. I've seen others of you grow in your faith, being set free from habitual and enslaving sin, and some of you being set free from habitual and enslaving religious performance. Many of you went from being kids who were just making messes in your eagerness and immaturity to being genuine spiritual leaders in our community. I have walked through so many hard conversations over the last 10 years that I simply can't uh, count them. I've helped some of you repent. Some of you have helped me repent. So I want to start here. Uh, Trailhead Church, I love you. I love you. I love this community. And I love the individuals that make up this community. I don't just love the idea of Trailhead Church. I love the experience, the people that make it up, right? The last 10 years have felt like a lifetime. 10 years in church planting years, right? They're like dog years. So the last decade's been like a lifetime, 70 years of of ministry and service. Um, It's the hardest job I've ever had, right? Harder than teaching, being a principal, starting business, doing sales. Uh, It's the hardest job I've ever had, the most demanding job I've ever had. And it is also the most rewarding job. I have ever had. And on most days, I love it. And every day, I love you. That's why we keep doing what we do. That's why we stick, why we stay, why we serve. And I want to be really, really clear, right? I want to be really, really clear. If you're young and a college student, and all you have to offer at this point is your eager mess, I love you. If you're old and set in your ways, and, and, and not quite sure how you, I love you. I am glad you're here. If you're new, like brand new, you've joined us during the pandemic and I've never even met you in the flesh, uh, I love you. If you've been around since before we were even trailhead and have seen all the different stages and experienced them with us, I, I love you. If, uh, if you were part of trailhead and for whatever reason ended up leaving our community, I doubt you're watching, but I love you. I love you. Um, If you voted for Trump, I love you. If you voted for Biden, I love you. If you voted for Joe Jorgensen or, or even Kanye West, I love you. Um... Listen, y'all, Trailhead has been a place from the beginning where the heart of what gathers us together is the grace of God. Not our affinity for one another, not the fact that we look around and we see people who look like us and think like us and have the same persuasion and the political convictions as us, but we look around and we see people who love Jesus because they've been loved by Jesus. 
And because of that, we have from the beginning been a place that's attracted political and ideological diversity. And I love that. It's been one of our greatest blessings and continues to be one of our great challenges. God's gift of diversity has always been one of the most challenging blessings he's given. It is so much easier just to be around people who see the world like we see it, think like we think, have the same uh, convictions and the same fears and the same prides, and, 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 and they just reflect us back to us. It is so much more comfortable. But we miss out on the blessing that comes when we're around others who see the world differently than we do, and they help us see it differently than, than we would on our own. Diversity gives more than we expect, but it often costs more than we want to give because it costs us in our humility. It requires us to set aside our pride. It requires us to overcome our fear. It requires us to have the courage to have conversations that are hard to have, to see people we'd rather judge than to love. It costs because we're more comfortable in our self-protection and our pride We like our sameness. So I want to celebrate. I want to celebrate what God has done and is doing in Trailhead Church. It's not always easy. Man, sometimes it is messy. People get offended. Hard conversations have to be had. We have to continually fight to to understand one another and value one another and, 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 and love one another. But it is unique and it is beautiful. This morning I want to talk about how we protect that, how we get past the challenge to the blessing. So that was my cheerleader hat. I, I don't feel very cheery, cheer, cheerleaderish, but that, that was the best you get this morning. Um, I'm going to put on my teacher hat, and then I'm going to my prophet hat, and we're going to end with the pastoral hat. So I'm going to move fairly quickly this morning. Um, as I was getting ready for our anniversary... The, uh, the one thing that I knew was that I wanted to go back to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is, uh, just, is just near and dear to my heart, right? It is, it is a book of firsts for me. It is the book that I read the night that I became a believer. It was the first book of the Bible I ever read. It was the first book I ever preached at Trailhead in 2011, the first book that we, that we preached through. That was crazy, by the way. Um, Hebrews is not for... Uh, the, the, the faint-hearted, it is not easy preaching, um, but I loved it, and I was committed to doing it. Um, this book, man, um, I, don't, I can't say that it's my favorite book. I don't know what my favorite book is, right? I just, every time I start talking about a different book of the Bible, I start talking about how much I love it, but it does have a very unique place in my heart, um, and there are chapters and sections of this book, chapters 9 and 10, and, and chapter 12, the one that we're looking at today, that, that night, right, when I was 17 years old and I was reading the Bible for the very first time, man, the, the, there were things in the Word that just imprinted themselves on my heart and on my imagination. Chapter 12, man, was one of them. I, I had no idea what charismatic, uh, what a charismatic moment was when I was 17. I wasn't in charismatic circles. I wasn't raised in a Christian home or around Christian circles. Um, but that night I had one, man. It was a spirit-ignited moment where my imagination was lit up with things I didn't fully understand. But man, it gripped my, my heart as I read through these verses that we're going to be looking at today. Uh, chapter 1229 became my first favorite verse, right? Um, for our God is a consuming fire. I didn't know fully what it meant. It actually scared me a little bit, but whatever it was, I wanted more of it. Like, like whatever can burn is going to burn. I don't know why, but that was deeply comforting to me. I'm like, if it's fake, it's gone. It's not going to last. God is going to burn everything that can be burned. He's going to shake everything that can be shaken, which I guess is terrifying, but for whatever reason, man, I found deep comfort in that, right? I just knew God was good, and and whatever was going to be left at the end of that process was going to be good. And so I want to look at that this morning, um, because I think it's a word we need to hear. I think it's a word. We need the challenge of this passage, and we need the the comfort 
of this passage. Um, this passage begins with a comparison between two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Now, when I read this when I was 17 years old, I had no idea what those two mountains were. I was raised Jehovah's Witness before we became part of the, the nuns, before nuns were known as nuns, and, and, uh, and not N-U-N, right? N-O-N-E, right? We, so, um, but, but I had no idea what Sinai and Zion were, right? I'm reading through this, and I had zero biblical literacy. And so this morning, if I'm talking about Sinai and Zion, and you're like, man, I don't know what you're talking about. You're in, you know, at least in my company. I don't know about good company. That's where I was, right? I just, I didn't, I didn't get it. But, but the visual imagery, man, it grabbed my imagination and it lit me up because, because I got this at least, that, that the author wasn't really talking about two mountains. He was talking about something those mountains represented. Right? Now I understand that he was talking about two very different covenants that were created at those two mountains. Right? At Mount Sinai, um, God created the Mosaic Covenant, what's known as the Law, right? the Ten Commandments and all the other commandments of the Old Testament, where Israel entered into this relationship with God where they basically said, if we do these things, we'll be blessed, and if we don't, we'll be cursed. And God was like, all right, give it your best shot. Here's a sacrificial system to help you out because you're not going to get there. And I need to remind you that you need to be forgiven, right? But I'm going to let you take your swing at this thing, right? Mount Sinai. Um, at Mount Zion, of course, we have the new covenant created through the work of Christ, the work of grace. And these two covenants couldn't be more different. And the description couldn't be more different, right? Take a look at verses 18 through 21 for the description of, of Mount Sinai, right? For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Holy cow, right? dark, foreboding, right? Fearful, right? Um, uh, the description here is, is, is meant to, to just weigh us with this dark, fearful, turbulent uh, sense of, of overwhelming dread and judgment, right? Mount Sinai, right? Where, where God created a law that promised blessing for those who obeyed and, and, and judgment for those who didn't, right? And here's the thing, y'all. What we know now is that the gift of the law wasn't the gift of self-improvement. The law was never given for us to fix ourselves or improve ourselves or become more moral. The Ten Commandments were not given so that we could become better people. The law was given so that we could discover that we're not better people, right? The Lord's like, you think you can fix yourself? Here's a perfect tool. See how you do with this. And in the process of, of measuring ourselves against a perfect standard, trying to use a perfect tool, it, it, it exposes to us just how deeply broken and flawed we are. The law wasn't given so that we could fix ourselves. The law was given so that we could know ourselves. The law wasn't given so that we could work our way up to God. The law was given so that we could realize just how desperately hopeless we were to fix ourselves. And the writer is saying, you don't come to God through this mountain, through this darkness, through this gloom, through this fear, through this trepidation, through the shaking that comes when, when your best effort still fails. You don't come to God through Sinai, you come to God through Zion, All right? Take a look at verses 22 through 24, but you have come to Mount Zion. Zion is uh, uh, a mountain on the southeastern portion of Jerusalem. Um, Zion came to be known for the entire city. The city was built upon a hill. It's why in the Gospels it always says they went up to Jerusalem. The idea was that they were always ascending up the hill. Um, but, but he's not talking about the physical city of Jerusalem, right? He's not saying we need to go take a pilgrimage to, to the actual physical city. No, he makes that clear. He says, you have come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem right? Not, not the physical symbolic representation of the house of God, but the actual heavenly house of God, right? And, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, right? It's like, it's like, no, you don't come to the darkness of this hill, you come to this hill. It's this beautiful heavenly hill, and, and guess who greets you at the door? The angels of God, innumerable 
right? And, and, and it is with festal gathering. The Greek there is this idea of calling in. Calling in, right? The angels are, are beckoning us in as we approach. They're calling us into this, to this, to this party, to this feast, to this incredible thing, right? We come to, um, in verse 23, and, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, right? The assembly, the word assembly there is the Greek word ekklesia, which, which we translate church. Right? Church isn't a building you go to, it's a community you join. Church are the called out people of God. Right? Trailhead Church isn't the four walls, it is, it is the living, breathing human beings that God has called together in covenant community to be a local church. Right? We have come to the assembly, to the church, to the called out people of the firstborn, which of course is Jesus, the one who occupies the position of the firstborn, the firstborn of God, the only begotten of God. But what's really, really cool here is firstborn is plural. Jesus isn't the only firstborn. We join the assembly of the firstborn. We take the the privilege of the firstborn as those who are are believers in Jesus. We we stand with Jesus in the assembly, sharing the same honor with the firstborn, right? And we're all enrolled in heaven. And we come to God, the judge of all, and it's like, oh, hey, that's kind of scary. And, And to spirits of the righteous made perfect. I love that. Not those who are righteous because they are perfect, but those who are righteous because they've been made perfect, right? The the assembly of the firstborn is made up of forgiven sinners, broken people made whole through the work of Christ, where where the Mount Sinai condemned us because of our inability to fix ourselves and save ourselves and improve ourselves. Mount Zion welcomes us because we have a hero and a savior who brings us before God, and we are righteous because we're made perfect through His work. We're not righteous because we are perfect through our own, right? And that's why it culminates in verse 24. He says, we come to Jesus. It's like you're coming to this party, and you're going through these stages, and you're coming through these rooms, and you finally come to the center space, and who do you see there? Jesus. Jesus Himself, our hero, our Savior, our brother, the lover of our souls, the mediator of a new covenant. The one who went to Mount Zion, not so that he might be blessed, so that we might be blessed. The one who, who... so here's the thing, the Mosaic law was given, y'all, and it promised blessing for those who obeyed and curse for those who disobeyed, right? But there was no Jew ever born who earned its blessing. Everybody came under its curse because everybody broke the law until Jesus was born. Jesus was born a Jew under the law, and he was the first man to ever fulfill the requirements of the law, to obey the law and win its blessing. He fulfilled the covenant and earned its prize, the blessing of God, by bearing its curse on our behalf. He invites us into that blessing. The one who earned its blessing came under its curse. Everyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. That's what the law says. Jesus was hung on a tree as our substitute, taking our place in judgment so that we could join him in his place of blessing. He who obeyed the law became the curse of the law on our behalf, bearing the the weight of condemnation for the guilt that we bring before God. So that when we believe in Him, we might be covered with His act of righteousness. We might be made firstborns of God. Those who are, in fact, in line to receive the greatest share of His blessing. To sit in the position of honor. Right? Being a firstborn of God is not a gendered thing. It's an honor thing. Every single one of us is a firstborn of God. A firstborn son who sits in the position of honor because we are covered with the very righteousness of Christ. Christ, the mediator of the new covenant, the one who who came and shed his own blood to inaugurate a new covenant through which we could be forgiven, a covenant of grace to be received by faith. Quite a difference, y'all, between those two descriptions. You know, we, we don't come to God through Sinai. We come to God through Zion, and it's a party. 
And at the center of the party is Jesus, our hero, our Savior, born under the law, who died under its curse and now gives us its, its blessing, right? Now, take a look at the end of verse 24. Because this is, I'll tell you what, first time I read this, I had no idea what it meant. Later, I studied, I'm like, okay, I kind of get it, right? And, and we come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What in the world does that mean? The sprinkled blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Well, I did a little bit of research, and I, and I studied a little bit, and I found out that Abel, right, Cain and Abel, the first sons of Adam and Eve, uh, were first murder in the Bible, right? They, they both brought an offering to God, and Abel's offering found favor with God, and Cain's offering did not. And Cain grew angry and jealous, and so he took Abel out into a field and killed him, hid the body, right? First murder in the Bible, right? And then in Genesis chapter 4, God shows up to, to Cain, and he's like, uh, where's your brother? <laughs> and, and Cain's like, what, am I my brother's keeper? He, he was being really witty there. And, uh, and God's like, look, his blood calls to me from the ground. His blood speaks a word to me. And so the, as I wrestled with this in the beginning, what I came to see was the blood of, of Abel speaks a word of, of longing for justice, right? But the blood of Christ speaks a word of justice fulfilled. The blood of Abel speaks of, of, of a yearning and an emptiness, and, and, and of a brokenness, and, and the blood of Christ speaks of a fulfillment. Maybe even vengeance versus, versus love, right? A life taken versus a life given. Um, um, but I think there's more under the surface here. So think about Adam and Eve, and, and Cain and Abel for a minute. Cain and Abel, Abel were the first generation born outside of the garden, right? Adam and Eve were created in the garden, and in the garden they experienced the fullness of the blessing of God, right? They, they, they lived every single day in the presence of God who poured out his goodness into their souls. They were created to feast on the goodness of God. They tasted the shalom of creation, the fullness of life in creation every single day. They worked from a place of rest. They loved from a place of security. They, 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 they delighted in each other and in the God who, who, who loved them, right? When they rebelled against God, they broke shalom with God, and in breaking shalom with God, they cut themselves off from the outpouring, the infinite outpouring of the goodness and the love of God. But their infinite desires for an infinite God didn't go away just because they rebelled against God. Those hungers, those desires remained restlessly in their soul, but now unable to be satisfied in a life-giving, love-centered relationship with the God they no longer trust and no longer love. Cain and Abel were born with these restless desires. Desires for, for significance and security and approval and rest and, and, and delight and pleasure. And those hungers were meant to be fed in the outpouring of the perfect character of God and in the creation that He gave them. But having been cut off from the outpouring of God's presence, they now were enslaved to trying to find those infinite hungers fed on finite things. They now had to turn to the creation to do for them what the Creator no longer did. Not, not because He was unable, not because He wasn't willing, but because they, by their will and their sin, had cut themselves off from the outpouring of the goodness of His, of his presence. And that hunger could never be satisfied by the temporary things that God created. The Creator is the only thing that satisfies the infant hungers of our soul. And this restless worldliness, right? Trying to find in the world what only God can give. Trying to create systems to, to find the fullness of life apart from the God who gives it. Trying to, to, to do, you know, look at the creation to do what only the creator can do. This worldliness gripped their hearts. And as a result, they had to keep what they had and get more. 
If I'm going to be secure, I have to keep what I have and get more. If I'm going to be significant, I have to keep what I have and get more. If I'm going to be approved, I have to keep what I have and get more. If I'm going to have pleasure, I have to keep what I have and get more. And as a result, I no longer find community with my brother. I find competition with my brother. He is no longer a source of blessing to me. He is a source of threats to me. I no longer am enriched when he is enriched. I am impoverished when I see him getting ahead of me. When he grows in significance, I grow in shame. When he grows in acceptance, I feel alienated and alone. When I see him enjoying pleasures from which I feel excluded, I feel defrauded and impoverished. Instead of finding community, I find competition. The world is a place of diminishing resources, and I need to keep what I have and fight to get more. You are no longer community to me. You are competition to me. And if I am going to get what I want, I can't let you keep it from me. Cain and Abel brought differing offerings to God. One had favor, Abel's. One did not, Cain's. Cain felt threatened by that, diminished, offended. So he rose up in his own power to take care of his own problem. And he killed the offender. And the blood of Abel cried from the ground. And Cain came with that profound question. What what am I, my brother's keeper? It is the same question we ask every single time someone makes a demand on us we don't want to meet. It is the same question we ask every single time someone shows up and wants to take something from us we want to keep. Or they want to keep to themselves something we want to have. I'm responsible for me. I'm not responsible for you. I am about me and my kingdom and my glory and my advancement and my people. Who are you to me? What am I, my brother's keeper? This is the bewildered question that comes from a mind clouded by the murky lies of worldliness. The profound question at the heart that is cut off from love. Y'all, of course you are your brother's keeper. Who else would be? We are created with a solemn responsibility to one another as those created in the image of God. We owe each other a grave and solemn debt of love because we were created by the God of love to be loved by God and to love one another. Who am I, my brother's keeper? Yes! But to the worldly mind, that is one of the most threatening things that could ever be said. Because I threaten to diminish your ability to keep what you have and get more. Because we all know love gives. We all know love sacrifices. We all know love lays down its rights for the good of the other. And that's terrifying to the worldly mind. How much do I have to give? How much do I have to surrender? How much do your rights infringe on my freedom? I need to provide for myself. I need to take care of myself. I need to fight for myself. And maybe I'll share what I have left. Y'all, this is the mindset that results when we see all of life as a place of limited resources where I have to fight for the fullness of life against you. Because the more you grow in it, the less I have. And the more I give up, the more I'm impoverished. You are no longer my brother, you are my competition. The word that comes from the blood of Abel is that you do not have the power to secure what you desperately want to have. No matter how much you kill, no matter how many walls you build, how many people you exclude, how much you keep for yourself, worldliness tells us that we have to fight for yourself or others will kill us. Worldliness tells us that we need to exclude others 
so that we can be enriched. You know, listen, the power of worldliness is death. Remember, death itself, death isn't the secession of being. Death is separation. When we die physically, our soul is separated from our body. When we die spiritually, our spirit is separated from the presence of God. Death is separation. The power of worldliness is death, this cutting off of separation. Death and all of its ugly cousins, right? The power of worldliness is fear, dread, threats, pain, isolation, intimidation, shame, and violence. The exercise of that power is our attempt through the power of man to accomplish the goodness of God. Thank you. Listen, y'all, the power of man is the power to destroy. You know why? Because it's all we have. We're not God. We want to be like God, but we can't be God, right? God speaks a word and things come into existence. We don't have the power to create. We only have the power to work with what God has created. We can't be God, no matter how desperately we want to sit in his seat. The only power we can exercise is destroying what he has created and threatening to destroy more. The power of man is destruction and death. But it's the only power we have, so that's the power we exercise. I will cut you off, I will diminish you, I will silence you, I will defeat you, and I will in the end possibly even kill you so that I can be secure, so that I can be significant, so that I can be approved, and I can find rest. I will do this to keep what I have and get more because I am under the insane delusion that somehow that is the path to the fullness of life. Even though every logical thought in me understands that it's not. And that no one ahead of me has been able to keep enough or get enough to find the fullness of life. That every single person who's walked this path ahead of me has ended in the same place I know I also will end. In my own death impoverished from the very things I am fighting so hard to keep and protect. The blood of Abel speaks the word of existential nihilism, emptiness, of powerlessness through the illusion of power. The blood of Christ speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Christ and Abel suffered the exercise of the same power, right? They were both unjustly attacked and killed because those uh, who attacked them saw them as threats, threats to to their ability to keep what they had and, and to get more. The difference was that Jesus did it as our substitute and as our Savior to deliver us from the insane cycle of worldliness. Right? Just like Mount Zion gave us a better invitation uh, than Mount Sinai, the blood of Christ gives us a better invitation to how we do life than the blood of Abel. Not through the power of destruction, but through the power of love. Right? The blood of Abel speaks a word of destruction. The blood of Christ speaks a word of resurrection of life, of creation. The exercise, man exercises his power to diminish others for the illusion of, of the advancement of myself, and God exercises power to enrich others, knowing that when he enriches others, he himself is not diminished. Man builds walls of exclusion. God creates doors of invitation. Man kills God raises from the dead. Man asks, am I my brother's keeper? Sarcastically implying, how in the world could I ever be responsible for you? As God takes responsibility for each one of us. Paying a debt that we could not pay to give us a blessing we could never earn. See, man is at the heart selfish. It is a prideful selfishness that drives worldliness. 
The blood of Christ speaks a better word. It is a word of love. It's a word of self-giving, self-sacrificing, of honoring the other instead of trying to compete with the other, taking joy in the blessing of other instead of feeling diminished by the blessing of the other, giving, even to the point of death, knowing that you can never outgive God and that death isn't the end of the story. We are not enriched when we keep what we have and get more. We are enriched because we've been given more than we can imagine we already have. We are among the company of the firstborn, blessed by God, already blessed with the blessings in heavenly places. As followers of Christ, we are called to not just give up our self-improvement projects to receive grace, we are called to lay aside our self-protection projects that lead us to exercise our power for self instead of for love. Y'all, we love grace when it enriches us. And I think we're often terrified of grace when it demands that we do the same for others. We want to receive all the blessings from God and then we want to keep what we have and get more. Afraid that we will be diminished and impoverished by the demands of love. So I want to be very clear. We're all worldly, y'all. The problem of Cain and Abel is the problem of Steve Mizell. The problem of Cain and Abel is the problem of your heart and my heart. We've all been born with this inheritance that came from our first parents, this brokenness, this sin, this separation from God, this restless yearning for the blessings of God, but trying to exercise and get them through the power of man. This is not someone else's problem. It's mine and yours. We do it individually and we create systems together to advantage us. We are all tempted to try to bend the power of self-preservation and self-promotion. We're all tempted to withhold blessings from others. If the costs of those blessings seem to be too much, we're all content to receive the blessings that have been stolen from others. If we think they're our due, we're content to receive the blessings we know others have stolen that we didn't steal ourselves to receive the benefit of unjust systems and abusive abusive exercises of power if they increase our comfort and our significance and exempt ourselves from responsibility for it because we ourselves weren't the ones who brought the actual injustice with, with our hands even though we're enjoying the benefits of the injustice. Our worldliness It is the way we see life. It is the air we breathe outside of the grace of God. The word of Christ speaks a better word. Am I my brother's keeper? Surely I'm only responsible for myself. You know, that's a really convenient get out of jail free card when the jail we're trying to avoid is the cost of love. Yeah, this is what we saw on display this week at our nation's capital. Not everybody there was a Christian. Not everybody there was, a, was, was doing this in the name of Christ, but there were plenty who were. Christian symbols all over the place. People trying to attain the blessing of God through the exercise of the power of man. Furious because they couldn't bring in the fullness of the blessing of God through the exercise of the power of man. And it only increased fear and anger and resentment and darkness. It's what we see in our social media feeds as people are attacking one another and fearing one another and seeking to diminish one another 
Am I my brother's keeper? Listen, y'all, the word of Christ speaks a better word. The answer to the question is yes, I am my brother's keeper. But we shouldn't be afraid of that answer. We are called out of our worldliness into grace. And that's not abandoning our hope for the fullness of life. It's the sanity of recognizing that the fullness of life comes from the outpouring of God's love in our hearts. The security we get from the declaration of God's approval over our lives. The the future that we have as firstborn, approved of God. It allows us to recognize that the world isn't a place of diminishing returns, of of limited resources, where I have to fight against you to get what I need. I am enriched when I love you. My borders are increased when I give to you. I am raised in honor when you are recognized. I am enriched. When we as a community grow in the shared experience of love. Y'all, we are being invited out of the insanity of worldliness. Out of, out of repeating the same pattern. Into the incredible economy of grace. Where we are enriched beyond our imagination by the love of God, and by sharing that love with others. Our hearts are exploding and growing as we learn to love others instead of compete with others, to give to others instead of take from others, to see others as God sees them, and to follow Jesus through the way of the cross, which, by the way, doesn't end in death. It ends in resurrection. The blood of Christ speaks a better word. Let's not be those who are deceived by the power brokers of this world who would like to anchor us in our partisan identities, causing divisions of hatred and fear, of alienation and darkness. Let's recognize that we are being invited to the party. Not not the party of my advancement, but the party of the glory of God in which we are all enriched. And the more we share, the richer we grow. Just drop down to verse 28. Verse 25 has a great warning, by the way. See that you don't refuse him who is speaking. (laughs) There's a warning all through this thing. Right? You can't have grace and worldliness. You, you can't receive grace but not grow in love. You can't take the grace of God and say, I'm going to keep what I have and get more. That's not the way it works, man. If you're going to receive the grace of God, if you're really going to experience the love of God, it's going to change you and free you. Right? So, so make sure you don't refuse him who is speaking, right? Down verse 28, therefore. What are we supposed to do with this? Let us be grateful. Let us be grateful, man. The better word of Christ isn't a word of threat to our little kingdoms. It's an invitation to the glory of His. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Because everything else is going to be shaken, is being shaken, man. We've received a kingdom that can't. Let us offer to God acceptable worship. That word for worship, 50% of the time is translated worship. 50% of the time is translated service. Receive the grace of God and worship God by serving in love. Receive love, move in love. Receive grace, give grace. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Our God is jealous for our good. And he will destroy everything that is blocking us from it. He will burn it. He will shake it. He will destroy it. Y'all, let's not put our, our hope in the wrong structures. Let's not try to build the wrong kingdoms. 
Because God's tearing it down. He is lighting the match. And at the end of the day, we will be purged. All of it will. For his glory and our good. So that we might be set free once again into the sanity of love. Happy 10-year anniversary. This is the invitation of the gospel, y'all. We need it today as much as we needed it last week. And we need to be set free into these truths for our good, God's glory, and for the, our neighbor's good. Let's be a community that lives this stuff out. Let me pray for us. We'll go into a time of response. Father, I thank you that uh, you loved us enough that, that you came to where we were. You didn't keep what you had and try to get more, man. You gave what you had in grace. You gave us your best. At a, at a, at a cost, we simply cannot esteem or evaluate the cost of love, of giving your son that he might be our substitute in judgment so that we could be his partner in blessing, that we might join the community of the firstborn, those who are, are, are righteous because we've been made perfect through the work of Christ and be set free back into the sanity of love. Lord, our hearts lie to us. We, we wrestle with fear. We wrestle with political fear. We, we wrestle with, with, with financial fear. We, we wrestle with, with influential fear. We, 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 we don't want to be diminished. We, we don't want to be made small. We don't want to be put at risk. We, we don't, and yet love continually calls us out of that fear. Spirit, will you give, the, give us the boldness of faith that would recognize that, that, that when we give, we're not diminished. When we love, when we sacrifice, when we honor, when we lay down our rights for the good of others, when we lay down our preferences that others might be made comfortable, when we lay down our kingdoms that your kingdom might be clearly seen, we, we are not impoverished. We are not made poor. We are, in fact, entering into the very riches you have in store for us. Lord, give us this boldness and give us this courage of faith. Allow us to be people who prophetically speak into this broken world. Allow us in this moment not to be those who are deceived by the forces that are around us that would call us to fear and call us to hatred and call us to partisan identity. Allow us to be those who rise in grace that we might speak a better word that is in line with the word we've received from the blood of Christ, a word of love. Allow us to lay down the weapons of worldliness, of fear and of hatred, of diminishing of others, of, of conquering, of defeating. And let us, Lord, rest in the fact that you have already won and that it is your kingdom that brings the fullness of life, not ours. It is your presence that brings true blessing not our vision, but whatever the fullness of life is that we have deceived ourselves into believing. Lord, deliver us into sanity. Intoxicate our hearts with your love that we might be freed to love others as we were created to do.